It's so lovely uh, to see you all this morning. Um, I went to visit a friend in prison uh, last week. It was good to see him. Can't give you uh, any of the details, but he has a very big story to tell. Life is really complicated for him. He's stuck in a very difficult situation and he's trying to work his way out of it. And uh, he needs our prayers. If you remember, could you pray for Richard's friend stuck in prison this week? Uh, because he would very much appreciate uh, our prayers in his difficult situation. Anyway, one of the things he told me was he was using his time in prison to get healthy. And his first few weeks there, he, he had, in his first few weeks there, he spent uh, with great determination uh, trying to lose some weight. And already when I looked at him, he looked healthier and he was starting to look uh, much slimmer. In fact, he was, he was looking good. This letter uh, from Ephesians we got this morning is a prison letter. Uh, later on in the writing uh, uh, Ephesians, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 20, lets us know that he is in chains writing this letter. That's code language for he is in prison. Paul, in his letters of the New Testament, often uh, found himself in prison, always unjustly. The authorities found him a difficult character uh, to put up with, so the easiest thing was to sort of put him out of mind for a bit and put him into jail. And when he was in jail, his regime wasn't to lose weight or to get healthy, but his regime was to write. It was probably the only time that he stopped in his very active ministry. And uh, so much of the New Testament actually is a book uh, written under persecution in prison. The pages of the New Testament flowed out of, the prison, out of prisons. Paul was stuck in a complicated place and it was, uh, if this, when he was stuck in this place, that was his cue to write. So he was writing to and encouraging new Christians. He was writing to and encouraging very new churches. He was writing to people who were trying uh, to work it out, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, when it was difficult to really understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And these people were often living in difficult, complicated and unfair situations. What I find interesting about being a Western Christian and uh, what I think is a feature of the Western church is that we do everything to avoid suffering. And yet, out of suffering, great faith is born. Out of suffering, a deeper understanding of Christ is found. It's in the dark places of life that Christianity was born, and yet we run away from this. We crave blessings in success and in the striving for it. But blessing is found in dark places a couple of weeks ago in the evening, I told a story about how uh, Etty uh, Ratner and uh, Rebecca, three Indonesian women who were Sunday uh, school teachers, who were unfairly imprisoned for simply running a Sunday school. So what we're doing sort of all around us this morning, these women were imprisoned for. And... Um, Jenny and I were really fortunate to have uh, Etty Ratner and Rebecca come and stay at our house for a few days. And Dr. Rebecca particularly uh, was inspirational. And Jenny asked her, how do I get to know God more? And Dr. Rebecca simply replied, you have to go where I have gone. 
She told Jenny that just before she was sent to prison, she had a sense she was going to have to go to a place where she didn't uh, want to go. She knew it was going to be hard. She knew that she might suffer. But two, she had a sense that God was going to be with her on this journey and in the suffering. She had to believe she wasn't alone. It was in the dark places Dr. Rebecca met with God and her story has gone on to help and inspire uh, more than people just being persecuted for their faith, but also people like you and me. She gets us to recognise that Jesus is in the dark, the complicated and the uncomfortable, the bleak and the unwanted. It is there we get to know him better Friends of ours has just discovered she has cancer and it's horrible because she's lovely uh, and she has a strong faith and she's just gone through some difficult uh, scans which take an age uh, to complete and whilst doing them she said she doesn't pray for herself because she knows there's uh, lots of people who are praying for her. Instead she says she prays for others and in her dark, complex and difficult place she has discovered a faith which trusts and reaches out to others. The darkness, the complexity, takes her closer to Jesus rather than self-pity. Her faith is like Paul's. Paul could have been outraged at the inconvenience and the injustice of yet another extended stay in a grim first century prison. But instead, he wrote, and that writing is what's inspiring us this morning. But it's more than writing we have this morning. It's actually a prayer. Paul, in the passage we've got, is praying deeply uh, this morning, extensively and with a great passion. His stay in prison is drawing him close to God. You see, Paul has stopped, like any activist, stopping is difficult. But he's not dashing around. He's unable to debate like he normally did. Dave told us all about the way that Paul, for three years, debated when he was in Ephesus. He can't do that at the moment. He's stuck in his own world and his own forced and, uh, and own thoughts. And in this enforced and unwanted downtime, when all he could do uh, was stop, Paul's choice was to chase God. And he chases God by praying and praising in verse 3. This is a man in jail saying this, Praise be to you, sorry, praise be to the God of our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He saw his darkness as a blessing. This is not doom and gloom and poor old me, I'm stuck in prison moaning, but deep prayer and praise which is the antidote to any negative and overwhelming and appalling thing. And this prayer today is one which is piercing and pressing in on the deeper things of God. There's an encounter going on in this prayer. It's a prayer where Paul's awareness of God deepens, his understanding of God broadens, and he enters into the eternal hugeness of God. Today's sermon is called uh, New Relationship, and Paul's relationship with God here is on full view. It's big, it's deep, and it's empowered. It's what drives Paul and what gives him such a deep passion uh, to never stop communicating about how significant, important, and brilliant Jesus is. It's as if Paul's difficulties and his vulnerabilities 
have enabled him to see the brilliance of God and the magnificence is recorded in these verses for all to see. His new relationship with God is born in adversity and it's offering us a way of seeing difficulty and adversities as the key signals to chase after God. Now, if there's any uh, New Testament Greek geeks here this morning, uh, as this prayer was originally written in New Testament Greek, uh, this prayer is just one big, long sentence. It's as if Paul is, is just getting some big stuff off his chest in his own private worship service, and we become witnesses of this spontaneous event pouring out of him. For the record, in my quick counting, this is 264 words and seven sentences in English. This, then, is one huge sentence. It's very complicated. It's full of theology. But it is a sentence which opens up some very key things of God and extraordinary themes uh, in Ephesians. I'm going to just home in on two things this morning. I could, you, could use, you could do a whole sermon series around this prayer I've got this morning, but all I've got time for is just to talk about two things. I could talk about many more things. But the first thing I want to hone in this morning, and I think it's important for the times we're living through at the moment, is don't forget the big picture. Don't forget the big picture. There is a big picture which dominates Christian thinking. Paul, in his prayer, is sucked up into a big picture of God and he prays into it. It's as if the Holy Spirit uh, makes him aware of the enormity of God and God's plans and God's working out. In prayer, Paul recognises a dynamic God, a mysterious God, a wise God, a huge God and an eternal God. A God who is beyond the individual and the local community, beyond nations and states and continents, beyond the world. A God of the universe, a God of all people. The full enormity of God is recognised and described and praised and adored in this prayer. Described in such a way which has kept theologians going for years and years. People have developed complete theologies and life plans based on this prayer. But in this prayer is a big idea. Paul is caught up in his imagining and working out and understanding of God. And as he does this, he expresses some profoundly important things about God, that he has an eternal prayer. If you look at the passage, you see that Paul uses words like chosen, predestined, adoption, inclusion. Verse 4, for he chooses us before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Verse 11, in him we are also chosen, having been predestined to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. All these words are really important. They are words that challenge us to think uh, that since the beginning of time, God has been thinking about these things. Since the beginning of time, he has been thinking about his people, uh, uh, the people he loves, his children, his followers. It's as if since the beginning of things, God has worked out how he wants to relate to his people. Since the beginning of time, Jesus was in his mind. Jesus, his son, the Christ, 
was integral in his plans. And this is significant. You see, the church in in Ephesus back then was very frail. It wasn't rich, the church, and established like it is now. This was no P's and G's or some rich Episcopal denomination with millions in the bank. It was on the edges. It was brittle. It was weak. The church in Ephesus wasn't full of the great and the good. It was probably full of slaves, ex-temple prostitutes, and the not very impressive. And Paul is saying to them, as he allows them to witness this prayer, that God has been thinking of you since the very beginning of time. God was writing at a time when Jewish leaders were doing their best uh, to uh, diminish Christianity, even try and get rid of it. He was writing at a time when the authorities would have loved it if Christianity would have vanished. If you were a Christian back then, you were under pressure. It was hard. And Paul proclaims incredible stuff in weakness and chaos. And in the weakness and chaos of the church back then, Paul was saying, God has got it all planned out. He has sorted it. He is in charge. He has worked out the way. He has you, his people, on his heart. And you are adopted into his family. They are such immense privileges given to you all, all because of Jesus, he says. And Paul in this prayer gives the church a glimpse of the bigger and wider picture. It might be hard now, he says. It might almost be impossible to believe this. But ultimately, God is in charge, whatever may happen. In God's mind was always going to be the church, the people of God, the people who take their name from his son Jesus. And in God's mind, he has always chosen us, chosen us and made it so since the very beginning. This was his big idea. This is why Jesus came to create this huge adopted family of God so they can join in with all the wonder and all the benefits of God. This is written to a community who are in trouble. And so this prayer gives them hope. No matter what anyone says, God is in charge and his plans are important. So keep going with him. I find this uh, so helpful because I shared a couple of weeks ago in the evening about how depressed I am at the moment and it's not just about Birmingham City getting Gianfranco Zola as their manager, a record of eight games and three draws five losses. I'm not depressed about that. I'm annoyed, but not depressed. Um, But I'm depressed about other things, because I'll be honest with you, I found Brexit hard enough. Um, But this whole Donald Trump thing has done my head in. I got, get concerned, I suppose, and worried and anxious when I think about all of what's going on too deeply. I'll be honest, it appalls me that so-called evangelical Christians voted for such a person and they voted in a way thinking it was the will of God to have somebody like him in power. I'm sad, I'm depressed and I'm angry and I don't like it and that's where I am and you can argue with me afterwards if you don't like my analysis or you think I need to be corrected in some way. However, I do know this, that the people whom God has a very special in his heart for 
those who are living in poverty, the marginalised, those with no power, those on the edges, those who are isolated, maybe even the ones who voted for people like Trump or Brexit who thought nothing can be worse than what we got now are going to be the ones most effective in a negative way by what's going on at the moment. The most bruised and the most abused, uh, abused are going to continue to be that uh, by our new Brexit and Trump world. It's confusing, disabling, and it feels a million miles away from the gospel. And yet, this morning, we have the very antidote to the little thinking which is starting to surround our world. We have a way forward. We have a challenge. It might be that we're angry, confused, and aghast at the events of the world. It could well be that we're very fearful about the future of the world. It certainly feels as though this is a movement of uh, things just starting and things haven't finished yet. And all I can say to you this morning, the only hope I can offer is we have a bigger God. This might all seem impossible, but God is much bigger than all of this. We might not understand, but we have a God of eternity. All might feel down and lost, but we have a God who can reshape things, renew things, revive things. And uh, we here this morning, the church, the followers, the believers, the Christians, the people of God, the worshippers, the praisers of Jesus, the one with a story about how God has changed our lives, has something far more, far bigger and far more wonderful uh, to move towards the God of eternity, the God who chose us, the God who predestined us, uh, the way forward, the God of adoption is still the same God. So let his bigness and his enormity overwhelm us today. We might seem lost and desperate, not just about Trump, but about many things. But God is in charge. Let's have faith. Let's have faith, my friends. Now is the time, more than ever, to recognise this big picture of God. And as we recognise this, like Paul, let's move then to a place of prayer. Our world is broken, so our key is to pray about it. In Paul's difficulty, he reshapes himself by praying. Praying somehow has to be our future. Prayer will reorganise our thinking. Prayer will renew our passions. It will give us wisdom and understanding. We are moving in difficult territory. Prayer is the answer. We might feel despair. Prayer and praise are the remedy. Prayer and praise will empower us and remind us that God's fantastic and huge eternal plans are exactly that. Fantastic. That's all Paul could do in prison. And that's our calling, I think, right now. So Paul's prayer has this wonderful hope about the big picture of God in it for people who are in trouble. But also it gives us a glimpse of the God we are dealing with and relating to. It's not just this great big God in charge of everything. This God who Paul worships and praises, the God, this God who adopts and predestines also brings answers, solutions, hope and goodness into the here and now. And we see it 
in, in the passage in phrases like in verse 6, glorious grace. Or verse 6 again, freely given us. Or verse 7, redemption through his blood. Verse 7 again, forgiveness of sins. Verse 7 and 8, God's grace that has been lavished upon us. God has lavished all his goodness on us. He hasn't just given us a tiny bit of his grace. He has lavished upon us. That means he has lavished upon us. He has given and given and given and given and given again. It's an eternal thing of God. His grace keeps on going. So it's all very well saying in charge. That's great. But that can also sound a bit cold and calculating, having a divine being in charge of all things. It feels like sometimes that can be a God removed from all things, ruling on his throne. That can sound distant and aloof. But God is much more than this. And Paul's prayer gives us a picture of this too. This immensely powerful God is too completely kind. And this word grace, which God has lavished upon us, It's so important for us to reflect on. Sometimes we forget about grace. Sometimes we prefer to think about a God who judges us and dislikes us. So let me tell you what God is really like. Because grace is all about God's uh, goodness. Bono says, it's a thought which has changed the world. Jim Packer asked the question, what is grace? And he gave the answer, in the New Testament, grace means God's love in action towards people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace too is about forgiveness. It's about sins forgiven Brokenness fixed. Grace is about second chances. Grace is not about being written off. Grace is a smile when we're pushing it. Grace is acceptance even when we're mean. It is spectacular and counterintuitive. It's the way we are saved. In the passage, the word is expressed as salvation. Grace is also expressed in the passage as redemption. Over 25 years ago, somebody posted a cheque through my door for £2,000. It was very kind of them, and it was the exact amount that I owned Barclay Card at the time, and I was redeemed and saved in a very graceful way from people banging on my door and wanting to take things from me, especially my telly. Grace is about being set free. It's a good and kind and wonderful and releasing word. It seems impossible. It can feel embarrassing because we do not deserve it. It seems uh, sometimes unreal. It is never deserved. If one word was to sum up Jesus, it would be the word grace. Grace is God cheering us on. God whispering, keep going when we feel like giving up. Grace is found on the cross. It is in uh, the resurrection. Grace is freedom. And verse 6 tells us it is freely given by God. Paul's prayer recognises there's nothing we can do, but God can do absolutely everything And this is the story of Jesus. This is the story of Christianity. This is God's big story in action. Grace is what he offers the church. Grace is what he offers people. It's being offered today for you and for I. It has no strings attached. It is given. Yes, we can be forgiven. Yes, 
We can have second chances. It's yes, yes, yes when it comes to grace. It might seem impossible. It might, again, feel embarrassing. It's often humbling and overwhelming. But grace says to us, yes, we can be part of God's plan. Yes, we can be forgiven. And yes, we can have a new start. As Dave uh, pointed out last week, we can never earn grace or do anything to get grace. No amount of good works are going to release grace. We can't buy our way into heaven with our kindness and goodness and generosity. It's all about God and his kindness and generosity. And the place where we see this grace at its boldest and most startling is when we just start to pray. As Paul is caught up in this amazing act of praise this morning, he can't help reflect on grace too, because for him it is the most incredible thing. Here was the man who totally hated Christians. Here was the man who was there at the murder of Stephen, who did his best to destroy Christianity, knowing he has done nothing to deserve anything good from God. But he would say he has got everything from God. So it's hardly surprising he goes on again and again and again about grace because grace is what it's about and that's why it's so important. This is why it features in our vision statement at P's and G's we are called to be whole life disciples sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole society through churches of grace. It's there on purpose because this is the big idea which dominates our thinking as a church. We would love people when they think of God and they come to this place and they meet people who come to this place to think he is a kind and generous God. In other words, he's a gracious God. We would love people to know there's nothing they can do to earn their way to God's approval. But no, it's all about what Jesus has done. That's why I'm very grateful that James uh, announced that Jenny and I ha have an evening on Thursday inviting you to talk about the new church plant and uh, love to see you there primarily so we can just tell a little bit of the story and how it's emerging but mostly uh, so we can together uh, pray about it um, but what we really want from this place is we want it to be whatever happens in the future this place of grace it's like grace going out from P's and G's, grace going out into the city. Grace is everything, it's completely everything, and it's the thing not only do we need most in our lives, it's the thing our city needs most in, a, in its life. And we want to be right at the hub of grace in this new thing we're doing because we know that is the place where God is. So please do come along and please do hold us in your prayers, particularly in the next few months as we slowly and but surely bring things together. So God has a big plan. God's got this big picture. We've heard about this. God, and Paul draws on this immensity of God in this prayer. But Paul also dwells on this wonderful, kind, generous and gracious view of God. And these ideas are going to be visited again and again as we travel through Ephesians in the coming weeks. But there's one final thing just to say. We don't just need to know about God's plan and God's grace. Paul speaks in verses 
13 and 14 and says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We can experience what Paul's talking about here too through the same Holy Spirit Paul's talking about. We're not on our own as we journey through the complexities and difficulties of life. God goes with us too. He gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us and help us to live in his grace. And this morning as we contemplate the big and terrible things of life, as we remember that ultimately God is somehow in charge as we celebrate God's very positive attitude towards the church and his grace. Let's too remember that as a group of people, we are empowered, that he is with us as we work out this big stuff. All of us who follow Jesus have the seal of the Holy Spirit, which is God with us, empowering and helping us and leading us forward to be the people God needs and desires and wants us to be. So be empowered this morning in all the joys, in all the complications which life throws your way. Remember, you are not on your own. Remember, journey with God. Embrace his big eternal story, but also embrace his love. God is on your side just as he was on Paul's side when Paul wrote this from prison, just as he was on Rebecca's side, Dr. Rebecca, as she was in prison, just as she's on our friend with cancer's side as she has her treatment. Let's come back to God today and encounter and embrace this deep love that he has. And let's live with it, let's journey with it, and let it mould us and change us so that we can be the people he needs us to be people full of grace so we can make an impact on our city and beyond. God bless us all as we work this one out.